Press it again, and then I'll stop it. Started. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Allahumma salli wa sallim wa barik ala nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een amma ba'd. So inshallah today we're going to begin with Surah Al-Masad, the tafsir of Surah Al-Masad, which is the 111th chapter of the Qur'an. A'udhu billahi minash shaytanir rajeem. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Tabbat yada abi lahabin watab. Ma aghna anhu maluhu wa ma kasab. Sayasla naran thata lahab. وَامْرَأَتُهُ حَمَّالَةَ الْحَطَبِ فِي جِيدِهَا حَبْلٌ مِّن مَّسَدٍ So the translation according to uh, Professor Abdul Halim, May the hands of Abu Lahab be ruined, may he be ruined too. Neither his wealth nor his gains will help him. He will burn in the flaming fire, and so will his wife the fire would carry her with a palm fiber rope, around her neck. So this is the 111th chapter of the Quran, Surah Al-Masad. It is known in the books of Tafsir by a number of names. The most famous of them is Surah Al-Masad, right? which is taken from the final word of the Surah, Masad being palm fiber. It's also known as uh, Surah Tabbat. Right? Surah Tabbat, and that's the Surah, uh, or the first word of the Surah, and that's the name, for example, that Imam Ibn Kathir, rahimahullah, gives this surah in his tafsir. He calls it surah Tabbat. Another name or third name for this surah is that it is surah uh, Abi Lahab, the surah of Abu Lahab. That's also mentioned in some of the books of tafsir. And a fourth name that is also mentioned is surah Lahab. So without the Abu, just the Lahab, right? Surah Lahab. So those are four names that are mentioned in the books of Tafsir. Masad, Abu Lahab, Tabbat, and Lahab. And as we said, Surah Al-Masad um, is the one that it's most commonly known by now. It's the one that's become most famous. It is a Makki Surah. So meaning that it was revealed before the Hijrah. There are some narrations in some of the books of Tafsir that it was uh, revealed in the fourth year of the Hijrah. The fourth year, sorry, not the fourth year of the Hijrah, the fourth year of prophethood. Right? So it's a pre-Makki uh, surah, it's a, it's a pre-Hijra surah, the Makki surah, the fourth year of the prophethood of the Prophet Anyway, irrespective of when it was revealed exactly, it is by ijma' by consensus of the scholars of tafsir. I didn't find any differing opinion that it is a Makki surah. And that's because of obviously the content and because of the uh, cause of revelation that we'll go into as well. So this was the opinion of Imam al-Shawkani, al-Qurtubi, Ibn Kathir, rahimahumullah, many of the scholars of tafsir, they say that it is Makkiyah bil ijma'. It is a Makki surah by consensus. And there's even reports and narrations from some of the companions, Aisha, Abdullah ibn, ibn Abbas, Abdullah ibn Zubayr, radiallahu anhum ajma'in, that they stated explicitly that this surah was a Makki surah, meaning that it was revealed before the migration of the Prophet wasallam from Mecca to Medina. This surah um, as we're going through the tafsir of the Qur'an, is the first surah that we're going to come across in which there are no specific virtues. No specific virtues to this surah. So 
as we mentioned, right, we started with Surah Al-Nas, then Surah Falaq, then Surah Al-Ikhlas, and one of the things that we always covered in the introduction to those surahs is that there were certain virtues. The Mu'awwidatain have many virtues, Surah Ikhlas has many virtues. But there are many other surahs of the Qur'an, as we know, that don't have virtues of, specific virtues for them. And that is the majority of the Qur'an. So the minority are the ones that we have extra virtues for, like Surah Ikhlas, like the Mu'awwidatain, like Surah Al-Kahf, like Surah Al-Mulk, like Surah Al-Fatiha, like Ayat Al-Kursi, like the last two, two verses of Surah Al-Baqarah. These are passages, verses, surahs of the Qur'an that have added virtues, added rewards when you read them, you memorize them, and so on and so forth. However, the vast majority of the Qur'an, there's no added virtue reading them, right? So you get the reward of reading the Qur'an, memorizing the Qur'an, acting upon the Qur'an, but there is no added significance or virtue or timing for reading these surahs. And Surah Al-Lahab is the first of many that we will come across like that. However, there is a cause of revelation. And again, as we said, you know, not every surah of the Qur'an has a specific cause of revelation that we know of, that it's, that's been narrated to us. And the Qur'an, as we know, is revealed for different reasons. Sometimes it's because of an incident that takes place or a question that is asked to the Prophet wasallam, and Allah reveals the Qur'an or verses of the Qur'an or passages or surahs of the Qur'an answering those questions. Sometimes it's because of an incident that plays out and Allah Azzawajal reveals again verses, passages, surahs of the Qur'an relating to that incident. And other times Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals the Qur'an himself with no cause, no specific incident, no specific question having been asked. Allah Azzawajal reveals verses of the Qur'an. However, so every surah that we've done so far has had a cause of revelation. Right? According to some of the scholars of tafsir, the Mu'awwidatain were revealed because of the incident of the witchcraft that was placed on, upon the Prophet ﷺ, Surah Al-Ikhlas, as we said, the cause of revelation was because the Arabs wanted to know the lineage of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Surah Al-Masad, or Surah Tabbat Yada Abi Lahabi Umatab, also has a cause of revelation. And that's a famous story which I think most of us are aware of. And most of us have come across. It's something which is well known and well mentioned, well rehearsed. And that is... Um, the, the specific narration, but the general story, is when the Prophet wasallam. before we go into the specific narrations that are mentioned, when the Prophet wasallam was sent with Islam, we know that it covered a number of stages. And the first of those stages was that the Prophet wasallam would call people in secret, people that he trusted, people that he could rely upon, people that he knew would accept Islam or were likely to accept Islam, like his wife Khadija radiallahu anha, like Abu Bakr radiallahu an, Ali radiallahu an, Zayd ibn al-Haritha radiallahu an. And then Abu Bakr went and called some of his closest friends, Uthman, Abu Ubaidah, others from amongst those early Muslims. But then there came a time when Allah Azza wa Jal commanded the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam to now begin to make the da'wah or the call to Islam more openly. And that was done also in stages. The first of those stages is As Allah says in the Quran, and warn the closest of your family. So the Prophet was commanded to call the closest people to him towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and that is a principle of da'wah. When you have some good, when you have some knowledge, when you have something that you want to, it is the sunnah and it is from the, uh, the methodology that Allah gives to us in the Qur'an, that you begin with the people closest to you. Right? Allah says in the Qur'an, 
يا ايها الذين امنوا قوا انفسكم واهليكم نارا or you who believe save yourselves and who your family from the fire right before everyone else before friends neighbors anyone else that comes you begin with the people who are closest to you so that's what allah azza wa jal commanded the prophet sallam to do right and so the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam did so he began to call the closest people to him and how did he call them he as is mentioned in this narration in sahih al-bukhari on the authority of abdullah ibn abbas radiyallahu anhum and by the way this is there are three uh, narrations or three incidents that some of the scholars said are causes all of them are causes of revelation for this surah three incidents that the scholars said are causes of revelation for this surah al-imam al-qurtubi rahimahullah in his tafsir he mentions all three the most famous of them and the one that is most widely accepted the one that most of the scholars of tafsir hold to be the cause of revelation and the most authentic out of them is the first one it's in al-bukhari obviously so that gives it away ibn abbas radiyallahu anhuma said that when the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam he came out to a place called batha which is an area of mecca and he climbed the mountain right and in some narrations we know that that mountain was the mountain of as-safa and the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam began to call out and say ya sabaha which is a call in the arabic language to denote calamity right to denote that there is immediate danger approaching and the arabs would have this as a warning system when they would call people out if they saw an army approaching if they saw some danger impending if they saw some problem that was drawing close they would call out in this manner because you don't have bounds you don't have anything else this is their warning system right it's their warning system so fajtama'at ilayhi quraish so the quraish came and they gathered around him and amongst them are the people that are closest to the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam the people that are his uncles and his kith and his kin and as we know quraish is all one big family anyway right they're all related to one another so the prophet said sallallahu alaihi wasallam do you see that if i was to tell you that an enemy was approaching he would arrive either this morning or in the evening would you believe me would you consider me to be truthful and they said naam yes we would so he said fa inni nadhirul lakum bayna yaday adhabin shadid he said so then therefore i am a warner before you before the coming of a great punishment from allah subhanahu wa ta'ala i am a warner that has come to you to warn you of a great punishment that is about to strike so abu lahab when he realized that there's no actual danger coming there's no army invading there's nothing He stood up and he said, "Ali, hada jamatana. Is this why you called us together? Tabbanak. May you perish. May you be destroyed. Right? And this word tab will go into the tafsir of exactly what it means. So then Ibn Abbas says, so Allah Azza wa Jal revealed the surah Tabbat Yada Abi Lahabi Wa Tab. Right? And this is in Al Bukhari. And there's a similar narration to it. Uh, which and all, all of these narrations that we're going to mention concern Abu Lahab but there's another narration that is mentioned in the Musnad of Imam Ahmad rahimahullah that he saw a um, you know just to show you how from that moment from the moment that Abu Lahab said this he became one of the greatest most ardent enemies of Islam and even though he's the uncle of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam his uncle he was one of the most hateful of people towards islam and towards the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and one who had the most enmity towards his own nephew and towards the message that he brought to highlight that we have this narration in the musnad of imam ahmad that one of the companions said 
uh, a man by the name of Rabi'ah, he said, and he's narrating before his Islam, before he became a Muslim, he said that I saw the Prophet ﷺ in Jahiliyyah, meaning before Islam, before he became a Muslim, at the beginning of Islam in the early days, that he was walking in the souq, in the marketplace. And he said to the people, he was calling out to the people, Ya ayyuhan nas, qulu la ilaha illallah tuflihu. O people, say la ilaha illallah, and you will be successful, right? you'll be saved. وَالنَّاسُ مُجْتَمِعُونَ عَلَيْهِ And the people have gathered around him. Right? What's this man saying? What's he calling to? And he said, And I saw behind him a man walking him, walking behind him, trailing behind him, a man who was fair-skinned and handsome in his appearance, saying that this guy is crazy and he's a liar. So I asked someone, and he'd go everywhere the Prophet ﷺ went and made this call, he would follow him saying the same thing. The Prophet is saying, Say la ilaha illallah, you'll be saved. He's saying, don't listen to him, he's crazy and he's a liar. So I asked someone, who is this man behind him? And they said, that is his uncle, Abu Lahab. Right? And more or less from the beginning of Islam, not only is he someone that doesn't like Islam or doesn't agree with the Prophet and he just left, he's someone who takes an active role in harming the Prophet and in uh, causing people to leave Islam or to stay away from the message of the Prophet right? And that shows you his uh, the level of enmity that he had towards Islam. So that's the first cause of revelation. And as I said, that is the most common in the books of Tafsir. It's the one that is most authentic because it's narrated in Al-Bukhari and it's narrated in many other books of Hadith other than Al-Bukhari as well. The second one, and this is mentioned by Al-Qurtubi in his, in his Tafsir, um, and I was trying to find where it's actually from, which book of hadith, and I wasn't able to come across its, um, its reference point. But he mentions it anyway in his book of tafsir. And he says that it's mentioned by some of the scholars of the past, like Abdurrahman ibn Zayd, that Abu Lahab came to the Prophet wasallam, and he said to him, O oh Muhammad, what will you give me if I believe in you? What will you give me if I believe in you? Meaning, what do I get? Right? What's a special status that I will receive. What do I get that's extra, that's more, if I believe in you, right? If I support you and I'm with you. And we know, just more generally, that this was an approach of the Quraysh, right? The Quraysh would come and they would want special time to sit with the Prophet ﷺ, special privileges. They didn't want to sit with the likes of Bilal and Ammar and Salman al-Farisi and some of the poorer, weaker companions. They wanted special privileges. So he's asking, what do I get? And the Prophet ﷺ replied, كَمَا يُعْطَى الْمُسْلِمُونَ You get what the Muslims get. Right? You get what everyone else gets. So he said to him, مَا عَلَيْهِمْ فَضْلٌ Don't I have any virtue over them? Anything that makes me special? Any preference over them? So he said to him, and what would you think that that is? The Prophet ﷺ replied, what kind of special preference do you think you are entitled to? So he replied to him, تَبَّلْ هذا مِنْ دِينٍ May this religion of yours be destroyed, a religion in which I and these others are made to be equals. May Allah destroy, or may this religion be destroyed, a religion in which I and these others are made to be equals. So Allah Azza wa Jal revealed the surah, Tabbat yada abi lahabim wa tab. Right? That's the second cause of revelation. The third cause of revelation also mentioned by Imam Al-Qurtubi, rahimahullah, in his tafsir. This time from a scholar by the name of Abdurrahman ibn Kaysan. He said that when the, when the delegations used to come to Mecca, 
and they would come and they would hear about the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and he would they would want to come and they would want to listen to him. Abu Lahab would go to them, and they would ask him, "What do you think of this man? You know him better than we do. You live here. You're his uncle. You know him better than we do. What do you think of him?" So he would say to them, "Innahu kathabun sahir." He's a liar, compulsive liar, and he's a magician. So they would return without listening to the Prophet ﷺ. He would scare them off and they would leave without listening. Until a delegation came and he said the same thing to them, but they said, we're not going to leave until we go and we listen to him. We're not going to go until we go and we listen to what he has to say. So he said to them, don't go because we're treating him, we're trying to cure him, and he's someone who's about to perish, right? فَتَبَّنْ لَهُ وَتَعِسَى He's going to be destroyed and he's going to perish. So the Prophet ﷺ heard about this and that distressed him. That distressed him. And so Allah revealed the surah, تَبَّتْ يَدَى أَبِي لَهَبٍ Right. So these are three narrations as we have it. The most famous of them and the most authentic as we said is the first. And that's the one that's most well known. And that is that the Prophet ﷺ stood on the mountain and he called the people and he warned them about the punishment that Allah will send upon them if they don't accept Islam and believe in Allah Azza wa Jal. And Abu Lahab stood up and he said, is this why you gathered us? Tabbalak, may you perish. Right? And there are different wordings to that same like narration uh, that you will find in the various narrations of the books of Hadith. Three. So the second one that I mentioned of Abu Lahab, where he's, um, where he's following people around, or where he's following the Prophet ﷺ around, that's not a cause of revelation. Right? That's like something which happens after that. Right? So that's not actually a cause of revelation because the, the revelation of the surah isn't mentioned in that narration. So that's the cause of revelation. So it's because of that particular incident that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed this surah, Tabbat yada abi lahabim wa tab, in defense and honor of the Prophet wasallam. And this shows to you, or shows to us rather, the station of the Prophet ﷺ in his status in the sight of Allah, that often Allah would defend him in the Qur'an. That when people would speak out of turn, or when they would say certain things, Allah would reveal the Qur'an and he would defend him ﷺ. One of the things that's also mentioned in the books of tafsir is um, the connection of this surah to the surah before it and the surah after it. Right? Surah Al-Ikhlas and the surah before it is... Surah Al-Nasr, إِذَا جَاءَ نَصْرُ اللَّهِ وَالْفَتْحِ And I found like a couple of interesting statements. It's connection to Surah Al-Nasr, إِذَا جَاءَ نَصْرُ اللَّهِ وَالْفَتْحِ is mentioned by Imam Al-Qurtubi, rahimahullah, in his tafsir. And he says that Surah Al-Nasr, and obviously that's not something which we've studied yet, we're going to come on to it. It's a surah in which Allah Azzawajal speaks about the victory that will be given to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. The victory that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam will receive. And as for this surah, is to show how Allah Azza wa Jal destroyed the enemies of the Prophet So one is about the victory that Allah will receive, but connected to that is this surah, because this surah is a surah about in which Allah Azza wa Jal speaks about how his enemies will be destroyed. And its connection to Surah Al-Ikhlas, is Surah Al-Ikhlas then speaks about how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has the power, he is unique in all of his ability subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we said that one of the most common, or one of the uh, one of the common interpretations of the name of Allah as Samad, is that He is perfect in His leadership. Right? That's what we said. One of the one of the common statements of the scholars in terms of what is the meaning of the name of Allah as Samad, 
is that Allah Azza wa Jal is perfect in his leadership. Whereas Surah Al-Masad, Allah Azza wa Jal speaks about the leadership of Abu Lahab. Right? Because Abu Lahab is a leader amongst his people. What was his source of, of leadership? His wealth and his family. Right? And how Allah Azza wa Jal therefore shows us that true power and true strength, number one, doesn't lie in these things. Doesn't lie in power. Uh, sorry, doesn't lie in wealth, doesn't lie in children, doesn't lie in lineage, in ancestry, in followers, and so on and so forth. And number two, that those things that we consider to be the sources of strength, wealth, and people, and so on, those things that we consider to be the sources of strength, how at the most, our most, uh, or in, in our time of most need, they won't benefit us. Right? They won't benefit us. And that's what Allah Azza wa mentions many times in the Quran. For example, in Surah Abasa, يَوْمَ يَفِرُّ الْمَرْءُ مِنْ أَخِيهِ On the day that a person will flee from his own brother. وَأُمِّهِ وَأَبِيهِ And his mother and his father. وَصَاحِبَتِهِ وَبَنِيًا From his wife and from his children. لِكُلِّ مْرِئٍ مِّنْهُمْ يَوْمَ إِذٍ شَأْنٌ يُغْنِي Each one of them will have their own affair to be concerned with on that day. The things that we consider to be our source of power, of strength and so on, like Abu Lahab did as we will see in this surah, Allah Azza wa says that they won't benefit you. What is the source of therefore of izza, of strength, of honor, of power? It is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that is the link between this surah and surah al-ikhlas. So we come into the first verse. Allah Azza wa says, Tabbat yada abi lahabin wa tab. You know we did this exercise last week uh, when we were speaking about, what was it? Was it as-samad? Right, and we went through the different translations um, that you find and, and how like, you know, they kind of like chose a different tafsir. Uh, and I want to do actually the same thing with this first verse, right? because it's very interesting. So I have four tafsirs um, that I chose, and I chose them at random. Right? This isn't a pre-prepared thing, it wasn't something that I planned. I just chose four tafsirs at random. Um, the first is Muhsin Khan's, the second is Sahih International, the third is Mufti uh, Taqi Uthmani, and the fourth is Professor Abdul Halim. Right? In Muhsin Khan's translation, he says, Perish the two hands of Abu Lahab and perish he. Right? Perish the two hands of Abu Lahab and perish he. And actually, Mufti Taqi Uthmani is exactly the same. He says exactly the same. Sahih International says, May the hands of Abu Lahab be ruined. And ruined is he. Right? May the, the hands of Abu Lahab be ruined, and ruined is he. And Professor Abdul Halim said, May the hands of Abu Lahab be ruined, may he be ruined too. Right? Now what I don't want you to do is to get so uh, pent up about the words that they're using, right? the phrases that they're using to describe the meaning of tabbat and so on, the translation. That's something which we'll come into later. What I want us to actually focus on or to think about for a moment is um, is the sentence structure right? the sentence structure so two of them said perish the two hands of Abu Lahab and perish he right? whereas Professor Abdul Halim says may the hands of Abu Lahab be ruined may he be ruined too what is the difference between the two to say perish perish what perish the two hands of Abu Lahab and may the two hands of Abu Lahab be ruined yeah Past tense, where the one present, and the word dub could indicate past tense, 
rather than it is currently happening now? Okay. Yeah, kind of in a very roundabout way. I want something like a bit clearer. What's the difference between perish the two hands of Abu Lahab and between may the two hands of Abu Lahab be ruined? What's the difference between may and between? Right, so one is, one is almost like a statement. Right? Perish the two hands of Abu Lahab. Right? It's something which is happened. It's khabar. So it's a statement. Whereas the second is almost a dua. Right? May the two hands of Abu Lahab be ruined. Right? That's almost a request, an invocation, a supplication. Whereas in Sahih International, right? and this is where it gets tricky now, <laughs> right? because what does Muhsin Khan do? He makes them both statements. Perish the two hands of Abu Lahab and perish he. Right? It's like both of them are statements. Abdul Halim does the exact opposite. He makes both of them dua. May the hands of Abu Lahab be ruined, may he be ruined too. Right? So it's like two duas. What does Sahih International say? May the hands of Abu Lahab be ruined, and ruined is he. What is that? One's the first part is a dua, and the second part is a statement. Right? It's almost as if he's saying, that's the dua, and then Allah responded to the dua. Right? And that again is something which we highlighted last week, right? when you have scholars of, uh, or rather translators coming to do a translation of the Qur'an, or the meanings of the Qur'an, what they're essentially doing is almost being scholars of tafsir. Right? They're choosing for you a tafsir, and according to that tafsir, they're giving you the translation. Why? Because this is a question, right? We have a word that is repeated twice in the first verse. Tabbat and tab. Right? Both of them mean the same thing. Right? Tabbat is just the feminine form of tab. Tabbat yada abi lahabun wa tab. Right? So tabbat and tab are the same word. One is feminine, one is masculine. Why is it repeated twice? That is the question and the opinions of the scholars of tafsir in response to that question is why you have these two different stands. Are they both du'as? Or are they both khabar statements? Or is one of them a du'a and one of them a statement? And actually all three of those opinions and all three of those um, approaches, if you like, to this first verse, all three of them have a basis in tafsir. Right? It's mentioned, all three of them are mentioned in the books of tafsir. But that's something which we'll come on to um, you know, in, in a short while. Right? But it's just something which, again, I wanted to highlight to you to show you how when you're choosing a translation, what you're essentially doing, and this is why it's very important, especially if you want to go into a deeper level of, of st- understanding the Qur'an and doing tafsir and contemplating the Qur'an, you can't just take a translation and suffice with it. You have to go to tafsir as an added level of knowledge. Because essentially what the translator is doing is just choosing for you one of you know, multiple variety of, of like opinions, right? As we said, for example, with the name of Samad, right? There were so many different opinions, right? And, um, you know, we'll, we'll do this when we come on to Surah Al-Kawthar, right? The name Al-Kawthar or the term Al-Kawthar, Inna A'tainak Al-Kawthar, Imam Al-Qurtubi, I think he mentioned 16 different opinions for Al-Kawthar the meaning of Al-Kawthar, right? Now, when this poor translator comes to the Qur'an, right, he's not going to give you 16 different translations. Right? I mean, Muhsin Khan's the one that tries to do that when he adds brackets and he like, gives you like three sentences. But most, most scholars aren't going to do that, or most like, translators aren't going to do that. They have to choose one, right? And they'll choose the one that they consider to be 
the strongest of those or the one that's most likely and so on and so forth, right? But then to go to a deeper level of tafsir, you need to understand exactly what it is that the different scholars of the Salaf said concerning those verses. Right? So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala begins um, surat, uh, surat al-Masad with this um, verse. Right. And Allah Azza wa begins by mentioning this person, right? this individual that we have and that most of us are familiar with, we've heard of before, and that is Abu Lahab. Right? Does anyone know what Abu Lahab's actual name was? Abu Lahab is his, like Kunya, right? It's his title. What do you call Kunya in English? Some weird name. <laughs> All right. That's helpful. <laughs> Monica. Monica, are you sure? I'm going to hold you to that. Uh, if I say it on mic, it's like everyone's going to believe you. So, okay, so, anyway, so Kunya. Right? Abu Lahab is his Kunya. What's his actual name? Anyone know? Yeah? No. And if you said that far back, I'm not going to ask you again. You're not involved. Yeah? Abdul Uzza. Abdul Uzza. Did you just look that up? I was checking Kunya. Oh, all right. What, what did he get? I didn't get anything. But... Oh, <laughs> Trust Google. All right, Abdul Uzza. Right? Abdul Uzza is his actual name. Right? So Abdul Uzza ibn Abdul Muttalib. Right? So he's the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ. Abdul Muttalib, as we know, had like 10 sons uh, and, and some daughters. And he had a number of wives. They're not all from the same wife. Right? All his sons are not from the same wife. He had, I think, five or six different wives. Abu Lahab, I think, from what I remember, is on his own. Meaning he's, he doesn't have any full brothers or sisters. From his mother, right, one of the wives of Abdul Muttalib, he's the only child. Whereas, for example, Abu Talib and Abdullah, the father of the Prophet ﷺ, were full brothers. Right? They had the same father and the same mother. Right? So Abdul uh, Uzza is known as, uh, sorry, Abu Lahab rather, his name was Abdul Uzza. Right? And his kunya is Abu Utbah. Abu Utbah, right? That's because Utbah is the name of his eldest son. So his eldest son, he has four children. The eldest of them is Utbah. So where did Abu Lahab come from? Some uh, of the scholars, they said that Lahab is one of the names of his son. Right? Lahab was a name of his son. But that seems to be, and Allah knows best, like a weak opinion. Right? And what seems to be more common and what's mentioned more in the books of Sirah and history and so on is that Abu Lahab was a name given to Abu Lahab by his father, Abdul Muttalib. And it was done so because of his handsome nature and because of his striking features. Right? And so he was called Abu Lahab. Right? He was called Abu Lahab. Lahab is flame. Right? In Arabic, Lahab is the flame. So because of his striking features, because of his handsomeness, because of maybe he was fair-skinned or light-skinned, he was called Abu Lahab. That seems to be what the, um, you know, what the, the vast majority of, uh, of historians seem to say concerning why he was given that name Abu Lahab. Right? And Abu Lahab, at the, beginning of, or at the very beginning of the life of the Prophet ﷺ, we have this story that's mentioned where uh, the Prophet ﷺ is born. Right? So obviously... Um, the Prophet ﷺ is born, and he's given this news by one of his slave girls, right? By the name of, what was her name? Thuwaiba. Thuwaiba. Very good. Thuwaiba. Right? And Thuwaiba, and it said because of how happy he was that he had a nephew, and obviously the Prophet ﷺ is the only child of Abdullah, right? So he's 
his only nephew from that brother. He became so happy and he was so overjoyed that he freed her because she was the one to bring the news to him. Right? That's what it said at the beginning of the life of the Prophet. He has four children, Abu Lahab. Three of them became companions. Three of them became companions and one of them died uh, not upon Islam. Right? So he has Utbah, Utaybah, Mu'tab, and a daughter by the name of Durra. Utbah right? and Mu'tab, Mu'tab became Muslim. And Utaybah didn't become a Muslim. Right? He died as a non-Muslim. And Durra, his daughter, also became a Muslim. So three of them are companions. Utbah and Mu'tab are uh, Muslims, and it's said that they became Muslims after the conquest of Mecca or around the conquest of Mecca. Right? And there's narrations, but again, I'm not sure how authentic they are, that when the Prophet ﷺ came into, into, um, into Mecca with the army, they fled, and they went to Arafah. They fled Mecca, and they went somewhere in Arafah, and the Prophet ﷺ said to Abbas, عن, the uncle, his uncle, his other uncle, why don't you go and bring to me the two sons of your brother, meaning the sons of Abu Lahab. And he went and he found them, and he said the Prophet ﷺ, you know, wants you and, and come and accept Islam. And so they came and they accepted Islam. And some of the books of, um, you know, like if you go through the books of uh, the battles of the Prophet ﷺ and the books of history and so on, they mentioned that they then fought with the Prophet ﷺ in the Battle of Hunayn. And when the other companions, you know, or some of the companions rather, they fled from the battlefield, they were from amongst the companions who stood firm with the Prophet ﷺ and they stood around the Prophet ﷺ. Durra, his daughter, the daughter of Abu Lahab, also became a Muslim, and it said that she became a Muslim uh, around the fourth or fifth year of the Hijrah, so while well before her brothers. And she migrated to Medina. So she left Mecca and she migrated to Medina. And there is a narration, um, and I, I'm, I'm, I can't remember from the top of my head now if it's authentic or not, but there is a narration about when um, some of the people, when they saw her, they started to say, This is the daughter of the enemy of Allah meaning Abu Lahab, right? Durra is his daughter. This is the daughter of the enemy of Allah. And so she became upset. Right? That's how they're referring to her, right? The daughter of the enemy of Allah. So the Prophet ﷺ heard about this, and he gathered the people, and he said to them, why do you harm the members of my family? Right? She is from my family, meaning she's my first cousin, the daughter of my uncle. Why do you harm the members of my family? Meaning don't say this about her, radiyallahu anha. Right? And then he has the son Utbah, or rather Utaybah, he's the one that doesn't become a Muslim. Right? And there are, it is mentioned, um, for example, in the books, in some of the books of, um, of, of Hadith, and also in the books of Sirah, uh, and Ibn Hajar, rahimahullah, mentions it, Fath al-Bari as well, he mentions it in his explanation of, of Sahih al-Bukhari and Fath al-Bari, he mentions that Utaybah died when, uh, at the beginning of Islam, the Prophet when Abu Lahab was an ardent enemy of Islam, Utaybah was one of those people who went and he spat upon the Prophet And he did so before he was leaving from Mecca to go on a trade caravan to Asham. So he was leaving and he was going on a trade caravan to Asham. So someone said to him, gave him the idea, why don't you go and spit upon the Prophet So he did so to show his hatred for the Prophet And then he left. So the Prophet said to him, or made the dua of Allah cause one of your dogs to devour him. Cause a dog to devour him. 
right? And so when he went and he traveled, the narration says that Abu Lahab, because he was in the trade caravan as well, Abu Lahab was afraid for his son because of the dua of the Prophet And he said to the people, don't leave him alone. Right? Always have someone around him because I fear that the dua of Muhammad will come and take him. And it said that as he slept one day, a lion came and it devoured him. Right? The point why uh, Ibn Hajar uh, rahimahullah, mentions this, he says because the word kalb in Arabic language, which means dog, can be used to refer to lion. Right? Because the hadith says that the Prophet said, Oh Allah caused one of your dogs to devour him, and what actually killed him was a lion. Right? So that's like a, a very, that's like a complete tangent. But anyway, so the point is that Utaybah was killed in that way. Right? And so it's mentioned by Ibn Hajar and it's mentioned in like some of the other books as well. And again, Allah Azza wa Jalla knows best about its authenticity, but it's something which is, uh, which is like at the very beginning of Islam. Kunya is called a technonym. A technonym? Oh, Kunya is a technonym. That's the English word, but like I said, it doesn't make it any easier for people. All right. Um, in terms of uh, the, the four children of Ulaha, was it Utayba and Utba who married their daughters of the Prophet? We're, we're going to come on to that. Inshallah. We're going to come on to that. Okay, so. Um, so Abu Lahab, so this is his family, right? Abu Lahab. Right? And Allah Azza wa Jalla in this surah will also speak about his wife, and her name is Ummu Jamil. Um, and she was the, the sister of Abu Sufyan. Abu Sufyan, radiallahu anhu, would later on become a Muslim, and he was obviously one of the leaders of Quraysh as well. She's his sister, right? But we'll come on to her later. So Abu Lahab has this enmity towards Islam, enmity towards the Muslims, enmity towards the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and he was one of those people who constantly and continuously tried to harm the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, constantly, always trying to harm the Prophet, sallallahu when the Prophet as you know, in the in the Meccan period, there came a time when uh, when the Meccans decided to boycott the Muslims. Right around the sixth or seventh year of prophethood, they decided that they would enact a complete economic, social boycott of the Muslims. Not only the Muslims, but the family of the Prophet So his clans, which were Banu uh, Hashim and Banu Muttalib, they would completely boycott them. So they went and it became known as the Hisar or the Shi'ab of Abu Talib. They went to a place in the desert, a valley, and that's where they lived. And no food was allowed to come to them. No, um, you know, no one was allowed to visit them. No one was allowed to marry from them. All communication was cut off. To the extent, to the extent that they were literally eating from like the skin of animals and, and, and raw um, you know, raw box of tree and twigs, and this is how they were surviving. That's how difficult it became. And the Quraysh had such a, you know, uh, an adamant view on this that they wouldn't allow anything to come in. That the contract that they made or the statement that they made to show how serious they were, they went and hung it up by the Kaaba, on the, in the inside the Kaaba, to show that this isn't something that we're messing around with, right? It's something which is extremely serious, and we're going to honor, right? And it lasted for like two or three years. That whole period. Nothing was allowed in, nothing was allowed out, a whole complete boycott. Until eventually some of the Quraysh became upset, and they said, these are people who are our relatives, that are our kin, that are our kith, and how can we do this to them? Because the Arabs were making fun of them, right? The other Arab tribes were laughing at them, that this is how you treat your own uncles, your cousins, your relatives, people that you've married into, your one family. And so some of them went and they tore up that, that contract that was in the Kaaba, and then the, the boycott was lifted. The point here being, 
that from amongst those people, even though people like Abu Talib, who's not a Muslim, is included within that boycott, right? And Abbas and others who are only there by virtue of being from the close family of the Prophet They're not Muslim, they didn't accept Islam, but simply because they're defending him, they're his family, and they're coming to his defense, and they won't let anyone harm him, they were also included in the boycott. But who wasn't included? Come on, guys. That's like, you know, the easiest question. Abu Lahab. Right? Why Abu Lahab? Because of how openly he hated the Prophet and how openly he tried to harm the Muslims and the Prophet Right? Whereas Abu Talib, okay, Abu Talib doesn't like, you know, Islam, he's not a Muslim, but at the same time he's not going against, you know, and Shaykh Al-Taymi has a nice thing in this on this surah where he says that the people who didn't accept, or there were three types of people in Mecca concerning Islam. The first of them were the Muslims, the people who believed they accepted Islam, Abu Bakr, all of those companions. The second were people who didn't accept Islam, but they were people who supported the Muslims, or at least they didn't harm them, like Abu Talib. Right? And the third are those, and they were the majority of those who didn't accept Islam. Not only did they reject Islam, but they openly harmed the Muslims, and you know, like Abu Jahl and Abu Lahab. So Abu Lahab is from amongst those people. Right? Abu Lahab is one of those people that didn't like the Prophet ﷺ, and he openly showed his enmity, so that he was exempted right, from this whole blockade and, and boycott and so on. Uh, you know, Al-Mubarak 40 mentions it in Al-Rahiq Al-Makhtum, the seal, Nectar and so on. If you go through those books, you'll find mention that Abu Lahab, it seems, was completely exempted from a boycott, even though these are people that, that are from his family and so on and so forth. Right? And that's why um, it's also mentioned in some of the books of Sirah and, and history that when Abu Talib passed away, Abu Talib passed away. Abu Lahab became the next leader of that family, right? So Abu Talib is, you know, the head of that family. He's one that they honor. He's one. Abu Lahab even even Abu Lahab won't go against his older brother Abu Talib. When Abu Talib passes away, who's the next senior in age? Abu Lahab, right? Abbas is younger. Hamza is younger. Others. Abu Lahab becomes the next leader. It's said for a few days. He said to the Quraysh because the Quraysh came to him, and they said, "Okay, Abu Talib is gone now. Now what, right?" Now it's like, you know, there's no one to defend him. Now what do we do? So he said to them, no. He's my nephew, and I will honor the position of my older brother, Abu Talib. So you can't harm him, right? And it's like ironic, right? Because he used to harm him, or, you know, say things about him and so on. But you can't, like, openly fight him, kill him, hurt him. That's what he was referring to. Until a few days later, uh, some of the other chiefs of Quraysh, they came to him, and they said, don't you know what he says about Abu Talib? And, you know, your father, Abdul Muttalib, and so on. He says, what does he say? He says that he says that they're all going to go into the fire. Right? They didn't believe they're not Muslims, so they're going to into the fire. So he went to the Prophet ﷺ, Abu Lahab, and he asked him, is this what you say? And he said, yes. Right? That's, that's Islam. Right? Anyone that doesn't believe in Allah and worship Allah, doesn't go into paradise. So then he openly started to have enmity, like openly started to harm the Prophet ﷺ, and, you know, he's obviously one of those people when the Quraysh come just before the Hijrah and they're willing to kill the Prophet ﷺ and assassinate him. Abu Lahab is from amongst those people who's agreed to this plot and this plan. And he's someone who is obviously one of the leaders of that within that context. Right? Do you have a question? Yeah, you mentioned that the, the chieftains of the tribes tore up the treaty. Some it, of them. Some of them. Was it not the case that when they came to the treaty, it was already? Sort of oh yes, sorry, yes, yes. Other than the name. But they had the intention. So they they had the intention that they would rip her up. But when they came 
to that treaty was already it had already been given. Actually, no. The the narration is that they came or the Prophet ﷺ told his uncle Abu Talib that it's been that it's been ripped up, and Abu Talib said to them that this is what has happened inside of the Kaaba, and they said, "How do you know?" He said, "If it has been done so, you lift the blockade." Right, so they went and they checked and it had been torn up. And Allah Azza wa knows best. So the point here being Abu Lahab is someone who has this enmity towards Quraysh, uh, towards the Prophet So when the Prophet and the Muslims migrated towards Mecca and they lived in Mecca and then you have the Battle of Badr. Right? And actually what's one um, very interesting thing, Abu Lahab didn't attend the Battle of Badr. Right? Abu Lahab didn't attend. He wasn't one of those people who attended the Battle of Badr even though all of the chiefs of Quraysh had to attend. Right. Well, how did Abu Lahab get out of it? <laughs> no, no, come on. It's not, you can't get a note from your doctor and say, I'm sick. Right? That's not going to fly, is it? I was ill, sir. Couldn't make it. He got someone else to go in his place. So he said that, it, that he was betting with someone, and someone owed him 4,000 dirhams or dinar or something, like some crazy extortion amount. And so when, and that person couldn't pay because it's like a crazy amount. So when the day of Badr came, he said to that man, if you take my place, we're all square. I don't have to go and fight, and you don't have to pay any money. And he agreed, that man agreed, and you know, he is one of those people that, um, that died on the Battle of Badr. Right? And this is how Abu Lahab got out of attending the Battle of Badr. He said, I've sent someone else in my place. Right? The point here, the, the reason why I mention this is, um, it's amazing because there's a hadith uh, which is uh, reported by Abdullah bin Mas'ud radiyallahu an, and it's collected in Al-Bukhari and other than Al-Bukhari and so on. The famous hadith when the Prophet is, is praying by the Kaaba and Abu Jahan is like, how does this man have the audacity you know, to come out in front of us and offer his prayers like this? So when he's in sajda, they agree that they're going to go and take the entrails of a camel and place it on his back. Right? And so they do so, and the Prophet ﷺ is sitting there, uh, sorry, in sajda, and he has these entrails on the camel. Abdullah bin Mas'ud says, I saw this, and I wasn't able to do anything, because of how weak the Muslims were, and how few in number. No one could go and stand up openly against those leaders of Quraysh at the beginning of Islam. Until Fatima, radiallahu anha, came, and she's a young girl, she saw this, and she came running, and she pushed off those entrails. So when the Prophet ﷺ completed his salah, he said, Allahumma alayka bi Quraysh. Oh Allah, destroy Quraysh. And then he went up to those leaders, right, and all of the chiefs are there. He went up to them and he named six of them, or seven of them by name. And he said, Allahumma alayka bi Abi Jahl. Oh Allah, destroy Abu Jahl. And destroy Umayyah. And destroy Utb, Walid. And destroy all of them. Uqba ibn Mu'id, Abi Mu'id. He named six, seven of them by name. And whose name doesn't he mention? Abu Lahab. Doesn't mention Abu Lahab. Right? Isn't it amazing? And so it's almost as if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala already knew. Oh, well, obviously Allah Azza wa Jalla knows what's going to happen. But like the Prophet ﷺ, in the names that he mentions, because Ibn Mas'ud, what does he say at the end of the hadith? I saw all of them dead on the plain of Badr. All of them died in the battlefield of Badr. But Abu Jahl's name isn't mentioned there. Right? Because Abu Jahl, as we know, wouldn't be from amongst those people who would attend. So what happens? Abu Lahab didn't go. He sent someone else in his place, a man... Um, who a man by the name of Al-As ibn Hisham. Al-As ibn Hisham. Right? This is the man that he had the gambling debt with. So he sent him in his place and he died on the plain of, of Badr. 
and it said that Umar radiallahu anhu was the one who killed him at Badr, this man, Al-As ibn Hisham. So this is a hadith of Abu Rafi'. Abu Rafi' is one of the servants of Al-Abbas radiallahu anhuma. And he says that I was, um, I was with Al-Abbas in Mecca because Abbas radiallahu anhu doesn't um, come to Mecca except after the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, right? Later on towards... Uh, the end of Islam, right? Um, and Or maybe even after that. Right, around, like, just before, like, the conquest of Mecca or something. So he's someone who didn't... However, did he become a Muslim or not before this? Right, this is an issue of difference of opinion amongst the scholars. Was he a Muslim before this, but he kept his Islam hidden, and he didn't want to forsake and leave Mecca and his family and his tribe and so on? Or was he someone who only accepted Islam later on, right? And there are, you know, like, uh, nothing explicit, but there are evidences that seem to suggest both. One of the evidences that seems to suggest that he was already a Muslim but he kept it quiet is this hadith of Abu Rafi. Abu Rafi is one of the servants of Al-Abbas. And he says that I was a Muslim and the wife of Abbas was a Muslim. Al-Abbas himself was a Muslim but he wasn't one of those people who wanted to openly profess his Islam. So Al-Abbas actually went on the day of Badr to fight with the Quraysh and he became one of the prisoners of war. He was one of the people who were captured and he was ransomed and he was returned to Mecca radiallahu The point is that Abu Rafi' says that I came one day towards the Kaaba with uh, Umm al-Fadl who is the wife of al-Abbas radiallahu anhuma. Both of them are Muslims. They both later became Muslims. Both of them. He said that we came to and he says that we had already become Muslim and hidden our Islam. We came, he said, towards the Kaaba to use Zamzam to wash some of our pots and pans and so on. And he said, as we were sitting there, Abu, Jah- Abu Lahab came. And as the Quraysh leaders used to do, he came and he sat in the shade of the Kaaba. And I'm summarizing the story. He sits in the shade of the Kaaba and he's sitting there and he wants to know what's gone on in the battle, right? What happened? Why did the Quraysh lose? What actually took place? And as he was sitting there, someone said to him, here comes Abu Sufyan, right? So he says to Abu Sufyan, come here. What happened? Right, to, what happened on the day of... Uh, Abu Sufyan isn't in the battle himself. But what happened on the day of, of Badr? Why, why did we lose? So he, Abu Sufyan says, I heard the people saying that they were fighting amongst the Muslims, men who were gleaming white, who were fierce in battle, who, and so on. And he starts to describe what, he, what are the angels. Right? Allah Azza wa mentions that he sent angels on the day of Badr to fight with the Muslims. Abu Rafi' said that I was so amazed by this description... So amazed by this description that I couldn't help myself and I said, by Allah, that is Allah's angels. And he's openly not a Muslim. Right? He's, like, he's, he's hiding his Islam. No one knows he's a Muslim. But he couldn't stop himself from saying, these are the angels of Allah that came to help. So he says, Abu Lahab became angry. And he started to beat me. He right? started to beat me. So Umm al-Fadl, the wife of al-Abbas, radiallahu anhuma, she says when he, she, he says when she saw... Abu Rafi' being beaten, when, he's, when she saw this, she took an implement that she had some kind of a tool or something, and she hit Abu Jahl with it. And she said to him, you know, you're only beating him, he's a slave, you're only beating him because his master, Abbas, isn't here. Right? Because you don't have the right to beat other people's slaves and servants and so on. You're only beating him because Abbas isn't here. You should have more shame than this. You're a leader of Quraysh, a man of you know, nobility, blah, 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 all of that stuff. You shouldn't be doing this. So, Abu Rafi' says that when she did this, when she hit him, she left a, um, a, 
a Machner or a Mach, she left a scar, more than a scar, an injury, right? And the injury became infected and he developed a disease, right? The disease in Arabic, I'm not quite sure what it is, but they say that it's something similar to the plague in terms of the way it looks and the way that it overtakes the body and so on. And it's something which the Arabs at that time used to think was also something which was infectious. So they would stay away from people who had this. So it said that after this incident, he only lived for a few days, five, six, seven days, and then he passed away. And the narration goes on to say that when he passed away, his sons refused to bury him. They refused to come close to him for two or three days until his body started to decay and decompose, and it started to have that foul odor of of decaying um, flesh. And they refused to come close to it because they were afraid of the disease that he had. Until someone, a man from Quraysh, came to them and he said to them, don't you have any shame, this is your father, and he's still lying there on his deathbed, and you haven't even buried him. And they said, we can't do so because we're afraid of what will happen. He said, okay, I'll help you. The three of us will go. I will help you, and let's take him. So they took him to some far corner of Mecca, and they buried him there without really giving him any burial rites or washing him or anything else, simply just to, uh, you know, just to kind of like be done with the whole issue. So this was like the demise of Abu Lahab, right? That Allah Azza wa Jal mentions in this surah, when Allah says that he will be perish, right? That he will die. And it's Allah Azza wa Jal is uh, telling us that this is the promise of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he will die. And it shows you the, 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 um, the certainty of Allah's promises. Abu Lahab didn't attend the day of Badr because he was afraid that he would be killed. Afraid of death. Afraid that he would be captured. Afraid that the Muslims would kill him. So he thought that he had escaped death by sending another in his place and give, forgiving a debt of like thousands of dinars and he would escape from death. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala caused him to die in like, you know, one of the most like simplest of ways. Right? A woman just strikes him over the head with something and he becomes infected and he dies. Right? And that's like something which reoccurs, right? as we know from the Quran and the Sunnah, whether it's the army of the elephants, how Allah azza wa destroy them, or whether it's how we know in the Sunnah, that Ya'juj and Ma'juj, this great horde of people that will come towards the end of time, this major sign of Yawm Al-Qiyamah, that will come and they will completely crush and destroy the earth. Right? Some narrations say that when Ya'juj and Ma'juj come out of their cave, of the, of the area that they're, they're, they're withheld in, when they will come, they will start, they will come across the river and they will drink from it. And there are so many of them, as Allah says in the Quran, they're like wave after wave of people. They will drink from that river until the final group that will emerge will find a dry riverbed. No water. And they will say once upon a time there used to be water here. Not realizing that it's their own people who because of their vast number they drank it dry. How will Allah destroy them? When they will come towards the end of time and they will have crushed everything on earth and the Muslims will be hiding, it said, on the mountain of At-Tur. Right, according to some narrations, mountain of Atura, and there will be no one that will be able to stop this horde of an army. Literally, they will destroy everything in its path. And then one of them will say, they will take an arrow and they will shoot it into the sky, and it will come back dripping with blood. And they will say, we have not only conquered the earth, now we have conquered the heavens as well. And it is when their kufr and their disbelief and their arrogance reaches that height, that Allah will send small insects, worm-like insects, in their necks, and it will eat them and they will die. No army will be needed. Right? Nothing. Allah Azza wa will destroy them in the simplest, in the most fragile of ways. 
And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this is a recurring theme that you find in the Qur'an and the Sunnah. And it's something which again we find here when Abu Lahab is trying to run away and flee from death. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, as Allah azza wa jalla says in the Qur'an, أَيْنَمَا تَكُونُوا يُدْرِكُّمُ الْمَوْتُ وَلَوْ كُنْتُمْ فِي بُرُوجٍ مُشَيَّدًا Wherever you may be, death will come and take you, even if you're in a fortified castle. My death doesn't have any, you know, there's no barrier, there's no obstruction that can stop, stop death. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when it is time for our souls to be taken, they will be taken. لا يستأخرون ساعة ولا يستقدمون Neither will that time be brought ahead, nor will it be delayed by any amount. So this is the story of, um, of Abu Lahab. A final point before we, um, you know, before we finish uh, for today. Ibn Abdul Bar, rahimahullah ta'ala, on the point that Uwais was asking about, he mentions that two of the sons of Abu Lahab had initially agreed to marry two of the daughters of the Prophet So Utbah was due to marry Ruqayyah, and Utaybah was due to marry Umm Kulthum, anhuma, the daughters of the Prophet but when Allah Azza wa Jal revealed, or when the Prophet came with Islam, so they had agreed to marry, but they hadn't yet consummated the marriage. They hadn't yet lived together or consummated the marriage, but the agreement had been made. But when then this incident came and the Prophet called the people to Islam, and then Abu Lahab stood up in opposition, and then Allah Azza wa Jal revealed Surah Tabbat Yada Abi Lahabin Watab, Abu Lahab came to his two sons and he said that it is haram for me to see you unless you divorce them, the two daughters of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. It is haram for me to see you, meaning he's taking an oath upon himself. Right? And this was very common amongst the Arabs that they would say, it is haram for me to see you again unless you do this. Right? It's an oath that they're taking, that unless you agree to something, we will never, you know, we're like almost, you don't exist for me. So they divorced them, right? They, the two of them divorced those two daughters of the Prophet sallallahu And as we know, both of them would eventually marry who? Ruqayyan Umm Kulthum, Uthman, radiyallahu anhu, wa And both of them, Ruqayyan Umm Kulthum, died during the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So that's also mentioned, um, you know, from the interesting points concerning the family of Abu Lahab. Abu Lahab is someone who, um, who therefore was extremely close to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam before Islam. And those narrations show that the Prophet ﷺ, they had a good relationship. But once Islam came, he became an ardent and opposed enemy of the Prophet ﷺ. And Allah knows best. Okay, I think we'll stop there, inshallah ta'ala. Um, and next week we'll start going into the actual verse and, and what it means. Any questions? Anything online? Okay. In that case, Jazakumullah khair, wa sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Assalamu alaykum.